Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. Quite a show today. A snowmageddon ravages Washington, D.C. I was I was dispirited, actually, to learn from Kyle, who is Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College key aide, that Dr. Arn was snowbound in Washington, D.C. And I said, you know, we Ohioans consider this a flurry. And I thought he, he was made of sterner stuff than this, to be snowbound by a couple of inches of snow. But nevertheless, we find him squirreled away uh, and, and, and snowbound in Washington, D.C. this afternoon. Dr. Arn, welcome. It's great to speak with you. Great to speak with you. And I'm working here. Well, I, I'm just, I, I, I can't believe that you are, you're quartered there. This is, if you were in Michigan, I can understand it, but you don't consider this a snowstorm, do you? It's worse than, it's worse than you know. I got in this afternoon on the last plane into Washington before they closed the airport. And all the meetings that I came for have been canceled. <laughs> I found that out in the air. <laughs> of course. Didn't anyone figure that out? Is that not? <laughs> I tell you what. It, uh, it's, uh, you know, everybody else on the plane was anxious to get home. But I was the one who said, I don't want to go. This is the only weekend I am not in Washington, New York for the next eight weeks. And I'm so blessed that I'm not there. Let me ask you, I also told Kyle to send word. That I, I set aside, we were supposed to talk about, and we will return to your book, Churchill's Trial. We were supposed to talk about Chapter 4, and we may talk about the strategists a bit anyway, but there's a crisis in conservatism today. And I can't think of anyone better, actually, to talk to about. You are sort of like me. You're a Switzerland here. The Kirby Center of Hillsdale College in Washington, D.C. is like the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's Switzerland. Everyone is welcome there from the Republican Party. But the National Review which I'm sure you have read since you were in Arkansas, which is at least seven, eight decades ago. Is <laughs> 400 a, years ago. Is a, <laughs> has come out with a special issue against a man. Yeah. And that's significant. What do you make of that? I don't know that they've done it before. I don't uh, think they have. Yeah, I, I've, I've read most of it this afternoon uh, because, of course, I have to do all kinds of things because you make me. <laughs> but but uh, I am surprised by it. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a it's a big thing. It's a big statement. It is a statement of what? I, I've only read bits and pieces, but you and I have many friends who wrote for that issue. I did not write for it, nor would I have written for it, because I'm pledged to neutrality, nor would you have written for it for the same reason. But what I, I, I would have written something analytical and neutral for it, but that's not what it's like. And uh, and and uh, it's, you know, a lot of my friends are there and the articles are strong. I'm not critical of national view. But it is a big thing, and it's, you know, they have taken the, the front runner on the Republican side, uh, 15 or so people, I didn't count the number, have attacked him hard and, uh, and on, a, on a lot of different grounds. And so, and a lot of them think, and uh, I don't really myself know what to think about this, I, I see arguments on both sides think that if he's nominated, that it will be a blow to the Republican Party and to conservatism, and they might not recover. At the same time, your friend, and, and, and I admire him greatly, Rush Limbaugh, was talking today, and I agree with him about this, that many people are attacking Ted Cruz uh, anonymously, surreptitiously, uh, somewhat deceitfully, behind closed doors, who will not say things about him out front. And Senator Cruz is a conservative. Whether or not they cotton to his politics in the Senate, if he were the nominee, he'd be the easiest nominee in the world to support. He's a conservative. And uh, Rush posited that conservatism has changed, that he hadn't changed, but that the Republicans in D.C. have changed. Now, you just went to their retreat. What do you think of his assessment? 
Well, uh, of course, these were not the Republicans I was with in D.C. that are writing in National Review. Those were office holders. Right. And uh, they were, you know, first of all, people think Trump might win. I I think that. And I'm the last guy in the world to start thinking that because, you know, as I'm fond of pointing out, the people who've been elected president of the United States come from a pretty narrow range of backgrounds. And nobody has ever been elected president to their first high public office. And on the other hand, Trump has gone farther than any I know of and farther than I thought he would. And as we speak right now, he's gaining strength. And uh, that, you know, and that's and, you know, there are some good effects of his gaining strength that shouldn't be ignored. And there are some potential enormously ill effects that also shouldn't be ignored. But I I did see some openness to him and, you know, lots of criticism and lots of hostility, too. But I saw some openness to him there. Now, as he gathers strength, even as the storm bears down in Washington, D.C., it it gathers strength, but then it dissipates or it moves on and it it leaves an after effect for a long, long time. And my question is, as he gathers strength over on the left, there's a parallel movement. And that's Bernie Sanders, who is urging the United States to go full Sweden. And he's gaining strength. Now, when we began diving into contemporary politics just a few weeks ago as the election approached the primary primary season it was against the backdrop of a year-long conversation that america is at a crisis moment do you is this consistent with that analysis that the left has grown more left and the republican party has fractured well i first of all the republican party has not fractured yet uh it may but it hasn't um and you know for the situations are different right First of all, Hillary Clinton is, you know, a terrible candidate for president so far. Just terrible. And and every kind of negative reaction to her is being made. And there's some danger that she's going to be indicted. Bernie Sanders is gaining strength while that's going on, right? On the other hand, the Republican field is strong, relatively speaking, to what I've seen in the past. And a couple of them are obviously, you know, maybe three or four, but a couple of them for sure are obviously excellent candidates for president. Oh, that, that's right. I spent the, the first hour of today's show with Marco Rubio and yesterday with Chris Christie and the day before with John Kasich and the day before with Carly Fiorina. Each of those four people could be president of the United States and I would sleep soundly at night. Would you not? I would, too. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can say Cruz this because he's sort of running second right now. Yeah. And the same with him, right? Right. And uh, and and so the Trump thing is is a phenomenon, and you know I'm more inclined to think about what it means than I am to say it's the death of everything if he wins. Okay, and I'm with you. So that let's go and ask and uh, and excavate what it means. And if you can, this is the Churchill series that has wandered far and back from Churchill. Was there any figure? Who was the, the guy who, who sort of, he wasn't a fascist, but he was a brown-shirted kind of character in, in England during the 30s? What was his Oswald name? Oswald Mosley. 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 And I'm not comparing Trump to Mosley, but during difficult times, movements arise. So do we have a contemporary uh, uh, counterpart to Trump in the life of Churchill? A, you know, a big businessman who was, I mean, actually, we talked about Beaverbrook last week, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Beaverbrook was Churchill's friend, and they fought plenty, but they were friends, too. And, uh, yeah, he wasn't like Trump. And, and see, remember, the question, what is Trump like, 
is a difficult question to answer because his record is not really long, and many of the things he's saying are very much need to be said. And when I say there are good things happening, the idea that we could approach these big questions, uh, immigration and the terror war especially, on the ground of what is the interest of the United States of America, and to address it on that ground first and overwhelmingly, that's a really good idea. And Trump has, has done that really boldly, sometimes in ways that I don't like, and even extremely. But, you know, there's something good about that, too. You know, we, we, we do not owe it to the world to surrender our principles or our securities or our borders. Nobody can rightly be asked to do that. No country can. And and the least la- the least likely country to do so is England because its border is an ocean, so it never has to build a fence. It's got a fence, uh, right? And and so when Trump talks about you can't be a country without a border, I actually think that's the secret of everything here, Larry. Is it that that the Congress has passed have offered a fence many many times, they've promised a fence many many times, they never built a fence, and whether or not it is true, they believe that people stream across that border by the thousands on a daily basis. And it doesn't matter if it's true. That's what they believe. And it, you're not going to change that in a political cycle. Is that the secret of Trump's appeal? Well, it's got to be the single most important thing. Yep. And, and, and remember, it's immoderate. It's, it's, not a, it's not a reasonable position if you've got, you know, some millions of people coming into the country illegally not to do something about it. And the, do, and the doing something about it seems to be feasible. I know serious people who argue that the fence works where it exists. And, and you know, if you just, you don't have to shoot people, but if you make it harder to get across, there'll be fewer come. And, you know, I'm a man who's, who's for very wide in, uh, immigration, and I think it should be based on uh, ability to contribute as a citizen of the United States by conviction and talent. And I don't think it has anything to do with race. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue this week about contemporary politics for a very important reason, the National Review issue which came out, and the crisis or not of conservatism with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All of these dialogues available at HughForHillsdale.com. HughForHillsdale.com. Stay tuned. It's Dr. Arn. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's the last radio hour of the week. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All of Hillsdale's many offerings are available at hillsdale.edu. All of these dialogues, this is the fourth year of the dialogues, are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. You're surprised there are four years, especially if you're in Valdosta, Georgia, on my new affiliate because Dr. Arn is so mean to me. But we are actually friends. And so <laughs> we've been doing this for a long time, but, but he, has, he takes liberties. He's allowed to take liberties with me because he is my friend. But when we went to break, we we're talking about the fence. Now, I have a, this is a far-fetched theory. But it's my theory. Around the College of Hillsdale, there are many statues. You've erected statues that are expressions of who the college is or that community and what it represents. In one important respect, the fence is a statue. It's a symbol, Larry Arn. It is an effective symbol. It will obstruct. It will delay. It will block. But it's also the visible expression of an inward resolve to be a country. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, that that thing, right? In other words, we're, uh, if you couple with this fact that we have forever failed to do what we could do to stop this porous border, 
uh, with the fact that now really bold and, to my mind, lawless actions have been taken by the president to naturalize those people, what that suggests is now the government, which is supposed to be picked by the people, is going to pick the people. And that's a, you know, that's, and people, you know, American people, very large numbers of them, and it's, last time I looked, it was over 65%, will say that they are afraid of their government. Yep. And, and you can't get 25% of them to say that, that they live in a system where, the gover- where they have consent of the governed. And so, and then it does this, right? And it's obviously immigration, every time the question of the fence comes up, it's obviously a partisan tool. And obviously, uh, the parties are thinking about who these immigrants are going to vote for if they get the vote. And so, and you know, who the, who the other Hispanics are going to vote for based on what the immigration issue says. And so it's just political, right? It's just about getting elected. And that's too bad, right? And people are, are tired of that. And then this bold man comes along and says he's going to do something about it in language that makes a firestorm, and then he doesn't back down. And uh, that's that's something new, right? It's potent. Yeah. It's very potent. And, I, and it, it has been very potent. I, I looked at Trump's website, um, and I, you know, I, I, I thought, I'm going to go read what he says, right? Well, first of all, there's a glaring admission on the website, right? It doesn't say much about national security. But and, and I don't like his tax plan, although I understand why it's popular. I like a lot about it. But his plan is to basically take everybody off the tax rolls or near very large numbers, more people of, off the tax rolls. And I like Ben Carson better about that, who says everybody ought to pay at least something. And I think it should be small. People who don't make much money shouldn't pay very much income tax. But everybody should pay something. Everybody's a citizen. And uh, so I prefer that, right? So it means I don't like his tax plan, but some of the others I don't like, too. And his immigration thing, I don't like the idea of excluding all Muslims from the United States. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is, are we going to exclude Jordanians and Kuwaitis? Right. on the ground of their religion. You know, we have a lot of friends in those countries, and if things go the way they're going, and they likely to, we're going to need those friends very much. So that was a, a rash thing to say. And one of the things about Trump is he says really strong things, and then as he keeps talking, he moderates them. And that means he kind of goes backwards. And I think that's part of his appeal. That's it's opposite of like Lincoln, really though, isn't it? Isn't that the opposite what? of Lincoln, who would say really mild things and then ratchet them up as he had to? Uh, a mixture. You know, Lincoln was so artful. It's like asking the question, how did Mozart write a symphony? <laughs> 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 the answer is he had more than one way of going about it. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, and above all, uh, you know, I wish Trump were more... Uh, I wish everybody, but I wish Trump were more artful at locating his positions in the principle, uh, in the context of the principles and institutions of America. I wish he talked more like that. But you know, I wish everybody talked more like that. And 
Let me so, speak about one of those institutions uh, that was provoked this week. The Supreme Court accepted cert in the immigration cases where the president has been lawless. And not only did they accept cert, they did something unprecedented that has constitutional heads shaking. They demanded a new question, not briefed, not presented by the appellate court, be be opened and argued. That is, is the president taking that the, taking care that the laws are faithfully executed? Now, this is new in, in in constitutional law. That's very rare that something is new in constitutional law, and that they have asked for briefing on a on a clause that's never been interpreted is really quite amazing. What did you make of that? Yeah, well, it's uh, uh, Obama has a bad record in front of the Supreme Court when questions arise about his use of his powers. And, uh, you know, so first of all, if you think about those presidents, he's lost a few cases, nine to nothing. And that's correct. When he did something and was sued for it as beyond his authorities. This one doesn't look good. No, I'm I'm quite certain we're going to win this. It's a question of whether I think the chief will take the opinion and he'll write it to try and get a sixth or a seventh vote with him. Maybe more. Well, he's had all nine time or two. And, th- and that's because the Constitution matters to these justices, and they swear oaths, and oaths ought to matter to them. And he is not taking care that the laws are faithfully executed by his own admission. That's right. I'll go back to something uh, about Trump in this context. Uh, one of the things you have to have to have popular government is that the laws and actions of the government need to be simple so that they can be understood. And government is hugely complex, and and uh, Trump is simple to understand. And the the court is trying to defend the rule of law in an age where the laws are so complex that it's hard to even know what they are. Uh, one of my students, who clerked for a very distinguished uh, appellate justice out on the West Coast, said to me that uh, it's very often true. When she's, she works for a big law firm in D.C. now, she said it's very often true now that it takes most of her time trying to find what, in fact, is the law about, a something, about something. And this is a girl who went to a top five law school and clerked at a high level. She's extremely skilled. But it and takes, so yeah. People think maybe Trump's going to break through all that. But, well, I think whoever wins. If they win, it'll be partly because people think that about them. I, I could not agree with you more. People are tired of being told it's above their pay grade. The Constitution was written for farmers to read, understand, and apply, Dr. R. That way, it's okay. not a secret society. It's not a robe to lead. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arndt. Go over during the break to hillsdale.edu. Sign up for all of their online courses, but especially Constitution 101. It's always available over there. And all of these dialogues, beginning with Homer four years ago, are available at hughforhillsdale.com. I'm going to be right back and talk about the conversation I had yesterday with Robert Gates with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College about what makes for a statesman, which is the subject of Dr. Arn's new book, Churchill's Trial, with St. Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government, to which we will turn in full next week. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the last radio hour of the week. That means the Hillsdale Dialogue. All the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at Hills, hughforhillsdale.com. And, of course, everything that Hillsdale offers, including its absolutely free newsletter, Imprimus, which is a speech digest, which you ought to be receiving, available at hillsdale.edu, H-I-L-L-S-D-A-L-E, hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, yesterday, former Secretary of Defense, former Director of the CIA, former Chancellor of the University of Texas A&M, 
Uh, Robert Gates was my guest, and we're talking about his very provocative new book, A Passion for Leadership, Lessons on Change and Reform from 50 Years of Public Service. book is much better than its subtitle, by the way. Uh, He quotes Jacques Barzan in a book from Dawn to Decadence, with which I'm not familiar and I haven't read it. But he quotes a great paragraph, which I asked him about and reminded me of your book, Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. Here's the quotation from Barzan. To govern well requires two distinct kinds of ability, political skill and the administrative mind. Both are very rare, either in combination or separately. The former depends on sensing what can be done at what moment and how to move others to want it. But one can be a true politico and be at the same time incapable of administration. To administer is to keep order in a situation that continually tends toward disorder. In running any organization, both people and things have to be kept straight from day to day. First of all, do you agree with the truth of that statement, that that concise statement? Uh, I think there's a truth that's more fundamental about than that, about what makes a statement, and it's written in Aristotle. But I do agree with that, that, that especially, you see, legislators are statesmen, and they don't administer anything. And there have been very great ones. So I'm not sure that quite gets at what has to happen. But it's, it's, it is true that if an executive has got to be able to manage things. And, and our, that involves understanding people and things in a big way. And, and so political skill, obviously you need that to be elected president. But then administrative skill. What is, by the way, what does Aristotle say that is more fundamental? Well, first of all, it's, it's a, everything in life is like what I'm about to say. We have bodies like animals, and we have needs, and we feel pain, and we have pleasures, and we have to eat, and I may be fleeing from the cold tomorrow. But, and, and what animals do is they just follow instincts to solve their problems. But we are a very different kind of being because even after we do a thing, we can regret it or even be embarrassed about it or be proud of it, and those are a judgment we make separately from our interest. And we have to serve our interest or we'll die, and, this, and our interest is always defined by the circumstances, right? I was in Florida this morning, and if I was still down there, I wouldn't be talking to you about the cold. That's correct. <laughs> so, 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 although they're complaining about the cold in Florida, it's 50. Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about weenies. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but but you see, in other words, statesmanship exists in a combination of ability to understand and manage circumstances, all the details of them, and the right sense of principle to show the ultimate way, which can seldom be served directly. And so the world is full of, uh, of statesmen who believe in realpolitik. That just means doing whatever you want. Uh, Whatever you think will, will work out for you. And, the world, and, you know, pragmatism and progressivism, what are they except a turning away from the idea of enduring principles to just trying to make things work, they say. And they forget. How do you know when they work, right? What if you're, what if you're rich and comfortable and you get it by enslaving and abusing people? That's not working. That doesn't work. And it leads to friction and misery, finally. So the point is, statesmanship is that intellectual, it involves that intellectual virtue that has its eye on two things all the time and finds ways to bring them together. And, uh, 
And, you know, that's, that's why, if you think about the fact that those two things are so urgent, that is to say, especially necessity is urgent, you know, Churchill was in big wars. And then rare among people of our time, Churchill was a constitutionalist. Yes. And a constitution is a bunch of rules made up a long time in advance that are very hard to change. Just, just listen to Obama talk. He always says, something has got to be done. The Congress is in a deadlock, forgets to say, in a deadlock with him. And so I'm going to act, right? You won't hear Winston Churchill making speeches like that. Indeed, today, I was reading volume 19 of the document volumes, and we're in October 1943, right? And and things are about to get very difficult between Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Then then hold that thought for after the break, because I I don't want to interrupt it when you begin, because uh, this will take us back to Trump and the right sense of principle. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. 44 minutes after the hour. If you're in the snowstorm, God love you and keep you safe. If you were smart, you have laid in a snow shovel, provisions, and a copy of Churchill's trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government, so you have something to read by flashlight when the lights go out. If you've got a flashlight, you would have been prudent. And Dr. Larry Arn, the author of Churchill's Trial, is with me for one more segment, president of Hillsdale College. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue, all of which you can also listen if you've got power or a generator to uh, uh, Hugh for Hillsdale, all the dialogues collected there, more than 100-plus hours of your binge-listening pleasure. Dr. Arm, we went to break. You said you had pulled a volume of Churchill from the stack today. What was it, volume 18? We're uh, we're actually editing the documents that are going to be published in this volume, 19. And so I'm working on it on my computer on the airplane. And there's a regulation, 18B, that was put in place in Britain at the beginning of the Second World War when the Germans might invade any day. And it allowed the executive to round up people if on good, for good reason, uh, they suspected that they were aiding the Germans or would and confine them. And many people were confined under that. In 1943, Churchill says, the danger of invasion is gone, and so we must give this power back forthwith. Huh. And there was uh, reluctance about it. There was a particular case of a man suspected, and they thought, we won't be able to arrest this man. And Churchill said, time for this power to end. How Only amazing that in a, emergencies. And a random uh, selection. It's random because you're randomly on the plane. You were randomly editing that, and we are talking about that subject right now. And I, right. I find that remarkable that in every, almost every day of Churchill's life, you can find something applicable to the, the present oh, yeah. exigency. Oh, yeah. So the surrender of power just doesn't happen anymore. That's right. You need to, you know, he, he, Churchill believed in freedom and he was extremely, you know, so first of all, there's not likely to be anybody in the race with such a deep understanding as Churchill had. It's almost unprecedented, although I think there's some very good candidates in the race. And we won't really know how deep they are until we see them do, right? Yeah. You're, you're actually guessing about everybody. That's correct. Except Hillary. We're not guessing about Hillary. <laughs> well, she's actually never held executive authority, although... I guess she's held Bill when he had it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we're not guessing about Hillary. But I want to go back before we run out of time. You mentioned in the last segment, statesmen must have the right sense of principle. And I began today by talking about the National Review issue, which came out, which has provoked, in fact, 
Uh, it's actually benefited me. They've, they've withdrawn National Review from the Republican National Committee debate. So more time for Hugh at the debate, in which I was going to share the stage with Rich Lowry. He's been booted uh, because they took a stand that made a cost. So it's consequential for them. So it's interesting. It was not without yeah. cost that they did that. It's a, it's a noble yeah. thing, even if you disagree with the premise that Trump is, is disqualified. George Will on this program on Monday said... He would favor a third party of conservatives if Trump was the nominee because he lacks a right sense of principle. And how do we know? Uh, he said many bad things in the past, but he's also repudiated those bad things. Uh, Reagan said bad things, became a Republican. People said that was a much longer period of time. He stood with Goldwater in 64. Well, so how do we know about Trump? Yeah, we, I, I, I don't profess to know. I, you know, whatever I think about him personally... Uh, you have to remember, the people who are supporting him are simply necessary to an electoral victory for anybody but the Democrats. And so, to write him off, and 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 you know, and there's some not from the people in National Review, but there are some people who write off his supporters too. Right. Oh, and electoral suicide. And I really, re- I regret that very much. Right. Okay. Poor people, you know. Look what they've been put up, put through. Quick, quick question before we run out of time. Churchill crossed the line twice. Uh, National View and George Will are intimating they would cross the line if Donald Trump was not. I will not. I'm a Disraeli. By party, if you rise, by party, you must uh, oblige. And so I, that's a paraphrase. But he was a party man, and he always said that. Uh, and I'm a party man, and because and it's Lincoln's party, so I'm comfortable there. But why did Churchill feel obliged to cross the line? And that means to leave a party and cross over to the other side of the House. Well, the first time he did it on the issue of free trade, uh, but that was but that's deeper. It was a political issue for him. He thought that tariffs would lead to the ultimate election of the socialist. And he never had any truck with them except during the Second World War. And the second time he did it because his liberal party made a pact to, join, to, to govern in common with the Labor Socialist Party, and he left it on that day. And Churchill, Churchill, Churchill always wanted politics to live around the center, but what he meant by the center was property rights, limited government, protection of civil liberties, and a social insurance scheme into which people would pay that would protect them in disaster. And so he always tried to support that in domestic politics. And uh, and he, he he liked to say uh, it's hard to rat, but I have managed also to read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> making making a beautiful point that has lived echoed through the ages, <laughs> and and he was hated for it. Right? Is, is that not a little Cruzian? Yeah. Well, Churchill was like Lincoln was capable of very powerful, extreme-sounding statesman. The socialists couldn't get their ultimate aim without the use of a Gestapo, he said in 1945. And people like that, but when you read what Churchill writes, it's it, that's an example of Trump-like rhetoric, actually, because he said that thing, and then if you read the qualifiers that follow immediately, although that is not their intent. Right, that that, that is Trump-like rhetoric, but I was referring to Cruz like uh, he incites Cruz like hatred. There are people that hate Ted Cruz. I'm not me. I love the guy. He's been on the show. Yeah. He practically lived in the studio when he was running for Senate. But but why do people like Churchill and Cruz 
and others uh, and Trump evoke such. It's just politics, right? Yeah, well, they're firm, right? And I know Ted Cruz very well, right? And I like him. And I've not seen the arrogant guy that people talk about. Neither have I. Intelligent and quick and funny. And, and also very ready to have a good conversation and not just talk all the way through it. I, you know, so, but, but I think it goes along with firmness, right? It, uh, and see, Trump is a pure outsider. And there's some of this stuff that he's not one of us. And I don't like that either. Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, always a pleasure. Put another log on the fire and, uh, and dive deep into those documents. We'll talk again next week on the next Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned, America. Mm-hmm.